0: God, in Jesus' name, Lord, we pray that you would enlighten us to understand your scriptures this evening, and God, to uh, get uh, very helpful things out of it, because we know everything in there is in there for your purposes in our lives. So God, we seek them out, and we pray that you would bless us, that your presence would be felt by all of us here tonight, and that this would just be a a great room, Lord, for your kingdom, your purposes, for your people to, to draw closer to you. So uh, have your way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So we, uh, we talked about Jeroboam and Rehoboam uh, last week. And who remembers who the northern king is? Jeroboam. And Rehoboam's king of the south. <laughs> what, what nation is the northern kingdom? Israel in the southern, yeah. Judah, okay? All right. Now, guys, if you struggle with that, then this is not your night for this stuff, okay? So uh, here we go. All right, so here's the thing. I am going to read chapters 15 and 16 straight through. I'll make a couple comments here and there. And when I look up, if you're still here, then we'll talk about it, okay? Okay. Um, uh, there's definitely something to get out of this at the end but you have to see the rhythm you have to see what the author is doing with how he wrote these chapters because it says as much as any commentary can say just how he wrote it so here we go first kings 15 in the 18th year of king jeroboam the son of nebat abijam the king of Ju- became king over judah he reigned three years in jerusalem his mother's name was Maakah the granddaughter of Abishalom, who is Absalom. That's just another rendering of Absalom. And he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had done before him. His heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. Nevertheless, for for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by setting up his son after him and by establishing Jerusalem. So first of all, you can just quickly see that God is faithful even when we're not, right? God, for David's sake, even though um, even, even though Abijah does not deserve uh, to be king, he's going to uh, make God very upset with him. Uh, for David's sake, the Lord gives him a lamp in Jerusalem by setting up his son after him and by establishing Jerusalem. Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except the matter of Uriah the Hittite. That's kind of an understatement there, right? I'll accept that, (laughs) except that, yeah. And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. Now the rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? Now I love that because it's saying, aren't there other sources that tell the same story? Okay, that's always a, a great mark of, um, historical reality right It's saying there's other sources here and there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam so Abijam rested with his fathers and they buried him in the city of David then Asa his son reigned in his place so so far we've had in the southern kingdom of Judah we've had Rehoboam now here was Abijam and now we come with Asa so he's which he's the third king correct? And there's always something unique about the third occurrence in the in the Bible. So here it says, uh, In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa became king over Judah. And he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. His grandmother's name was Maacah, the granddaughter of Abishalom. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did his father David. So the third occurrence is usually a sign of life. Mm-hmm. And here you get the third king of Judah, And finally, you get somebody spoken of positively. It's a sign of life coming to Judah here. There's some 40-something occurrences of a third occurrence in the Old Testament or a third day. Something happens on the third day. Whether it's Joshua crossing the Jordan on the third day to go into the Promised Land. Um, Abraham seeing the place where he's to sacrifice his son on the third day as they approach that mountain. And it's always this idea of something new coming. And what is that preparing your heart for? There's going to be new life given on the third day, on a Sunday morning, um, and three days of Jesus being in the tomb. So God's kind of preparing your hearts for that event through these third-day occurrences. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did his father David. And he banished the perverted persons from the land and removed all the idols that his father had made. Also, he removed Maaca, his grandmother, from being queen mother, because she had made an obscene image of Asherah. Any of you have an embarrassing grandmother? She makes this obscene image and he's like, oh my gosh, grandma, what are you doing? So he removes her from being queen mother. Now, isn't that hard when your family does something so opposed to God and it's like in your home, especially? Okay. Um, I, I, I was just asked to speak in on a family who took their mother in and she is practicing witchcraft in the house. So they're like, I don't want to throw mom out, but I don't want witchcraft in the house either. So um, it, it's very hard. But but what's the Bible teach you to do in that situation? Love God even more than mother, father, sister, brother, right? You're to love God more than, more than them. That's not always easy. Sometimes it's very easy. Sometimes it's not very easy. But Asa was able to do that. He removed his grandmother, his queen mother, And Asa cut down her obscene image and burned it by the brook Kidron, but the high places were not removed. Nevertheless, Asa's heart was loyal to the Lord all his days. He also brought into the house of the Lord the things which his father had dedicated and the things which he himself had dedicated, silver and gold and utensils. Here's what I like about Asa is, unlike Solomon, who has has, uh, prophets or uh, David had Nathan and You know, you see these mentor-like guides for these people. I like to see Asa who did things right and he was apparently on his own. There's nobody with him. Nobody's credited with guiding him. Um, And here's why I like that is because two things. One, we always get fascinated by people who have this incredible testimony. And for it to be a credible testimony, it's usually because they had such a bad experience that, and they overcame it, that it becomes this testimony. And so, you know, working with Calvary House guys, Redeeming Love House girls, and doing just doing ministry, you come across these people with amazing testimonies, absolutely astounding testimonies. And then you look at your life and you go, what has God done? There's nothing extreme he's done in that. But you know what I came to realize one day? What a testimony that God takes some of us and lets us know him at such an early age that we end up kind of, not having to learn from our mistakes. We get to learn from God right from a very early age, and we don't have a crazy testimony. The testimony is the faithfulness of God from beginning to end, right? That's quite a testimony. And the second thing is this. Um, I was in a meeting the other day at church, and we were talking about summer classes and things we're gonna do this summer, or actually throughout the whole year and everything. And um, I was saying we need more actual Bible teaching. You know, we have this subject, this subject, this subject. Every topic you can cover is going to be covered. And I said, but I figured those things out, not by taking topical I figured them out just by studying this through and through. And there's a wisdom that comes with studying this that allows you to speak in on those things without actually being taught those actual things. You actually get the mind of God when you're reading his word uh, consistently. And and one, somebody in the meeting said, well, who, you know, who uh, who mentored you? And I said, nobody. They're like, how long have you been saved? Almost 30 years. Nobody's mentored you? No, not one person. Not one person's ever sat me down, poured into my life spiritually, done all these things, and uh, except for Jesus. Jesus mentored me day after day after day after day after day. And um, I think we underestimate. I think we use as excuses things like, you know, there's nobody pouring into my life or there's, um, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm not studying the Bible because I'm, I'm taking this class or this class or this parenting or this whatever. Receive the mind of God through the word of God and then see how that wisdom guides you and all other things. That's why I like Asa. He's kind of standing on his own two feet and his legacy is he's doing things right and he's pleasing God. 16, now there was a war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. And Baasha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might let none go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa took all the silver and gold that was left in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house and delivered them into the hand of his servants. And king Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tabrimam, the son of Hezion, king of Syria, who dwelt in Damascus, saying, let there be a treaty between you and me, as there was between my father and your father. See, I have sent you a present of silver and gold. Come and break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. Now I'm taking a class on on Isaiah right now, and, and we have to seriously dig into that book, like, very intently. I spent at least six hours today doing about four or five chapters uh, of Isaiah and um, one of the things you see in there is God completely frustrated over the things that Kings trust in, besides him they, they make these alliances that you just saw Asa make he's given silver and gold to the king of Syria to say hey I'm having problems with Israel right now you're allied with Israel why not here's some silver and gold be allied with me and you're gonna see the king of Assyria break ties with Israel and immediately come and oppose Israel for Judah's sake. Money just turns uh, their loyalties just like that. So what delivered King Asa from trouble with uh, with, uh, Israel? Money, right? Is that what you're to rely on? You're not to rely on that. So um, silver and gold became his deliverer. Silver and gold became his idol uh, in this situation. And uh, in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, starting verse 7, it says, And at that time Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, the same king, and said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Syria, it's talking about what we just read in 1 Kings 15, Because you relied on the king of Syria and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Assyria has escaped from your hand. Were the Ethiopians and the Lubim not a huge army with very many chariot and horsemen? horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. He's saying, I've already shown you when you count on me, I can deliver you from huge armies. So why did you go pay um, the Assyrians to protect you? For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. In this you have done foolishly, therefore from now on you shall have wars. (laughs) Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in prison, for he was enraged at him because of this. And Asa opposed some of the peoples at that time. Okay, so directly uh, opposed to trusting God uh, is what he did. All right, verse 20. So Ben-Hadad heeded King Asa and sent the captains of his armies against the cities of Israel. He attacked... Aijon, Dan, Abel, Beth, Ma'aka, and all Chinaroth, with all the land of Naphtali. Now it happened when Baasha heard it, that he stopped building Ramah and returned to Terzah. Then King Asa made a proclamation throughout all Judah. None was exempted. And they took away the stones and timber of Ramah, which Baasha, Baasha had used for building. And with them, the King uh, King Asa built Geba of Benjamin and Mizpah, Then all the... The rest of all the acts of Asa, all his might, all that he did, and the cities which he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? But in the time of his old age, he was diseased in his feet. So Asa rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. Then Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place. Now Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel in the second year of Asa king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel two years. So you see that the, the timeline is how the author does things. He's saying, so here's Jeroboam that reigned 20 years. And while he's reigning, here's some various southern kings of Judah that are reigning during his reign. And here's, uh, in this year of his reign, you got this king. Then in this year of his reign, you got this king. And and then they, they flip and say, now in this year of the reign of the king of Judah, this king in Israel is reigning. So you got to kind of just kind of follow it that way. So, uh, uh, 26, he did evil in sight of the Lord, this is Nadab, and walked in the way of his father, and in his sin, which he had made Israel sin. Then Baasha, the son of Ahijah, now Ahijah, there was a prophet named Ahijah that told Jeroboam you're going to be king of Israel. That was a few chapters ago. This is a different Ahijah. Then Baasha, son of Ahijah, of the house of Issachar, conspired against him, and Baasha killed him at Gibbethon which belonged to the Philistines, while Nadab and all Israel laid siege to Gibbethon. Baasha killed him in the third year of Asa king of Judah and reigned in his place. And it was so, when he became king, that he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He did not leave to Jeroboam anyone that breathed until he had destroyed him according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. That's the prophet from Solomon. Because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he had sinned and by which he had made Israel sin because of his provocation with which he had provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger. And if you just go back a couple chapters or one chapter to chapter 14, verse 10, there you get Ahijah saying, I will bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. I'll cut off from Jeroboam every male in Israel. Remember the gross language that went with that? Okay. And now that's the fulfillment of it right here. Um, done, done here. Uh, by Nadab. Now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And there was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Baasha, the son of Ahijah, became king over all Israel and Terzah and reigned 24 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam, and in his sin by which he had made Israel sin. Chapter 16. Then the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Baasha, saying, And as much as I lifted you out of the dust and made you ruler over my people Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel sin to provoke me to anger with their sins, surely I will take away the posterity of Baasha and the posterity of his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. The dog shall eat whoever belongs to Baasha and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the fields remember that language from last time okay now the rest of the acts of baasha what he did in his might are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of israel so baasha rested with his fathers and was buried in terza then elah his son reigned in his place and so the word of the lord came by the prophet jehu the son of hanani against baasha and his house because of all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord and provoking him to anger with the work of his hands and being like the house of Jeroboam and because he killed him. Hang in there. In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, the son of Baasha, became king over Israel and reigned two years in Tirzah. Now a servant Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him as he was in Tirzah drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, steward of his house in Tirzah. And Zimri went in and struck him and killed him in the twenty-seventh year of Asa king of Judah and reigned in his place. Then it came to pass, when he began to reign, as soon as he was seated on his throne, that he killed all the household of Baasha. He did not leave him one male, neither of his relatives nor of his friends. Thus Zimri destroyed all the household of Baasha, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Baasha by Jehu the prophet. For all the sins of Baasha and the sins of Elah his son, by which they had sinned, and by which they had made Israel sin, and provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? <clears throat> in the twenty-seventh year of Asa king of Judah, Zimri had reigned in Terza seven days, and the people seven days he reigned. And the people were encamped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. Now the people who were encamped heard it, said, Zimri has conspired and also has killed the king. So all Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that day in the camp. Then Omri and all Israel with him went up to Gibbethon and they besieged Terza. And it happened when Zimri saw that the city was taken, that he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house down upon himself with fire and died because of the sins which he had committed in doing evil in the sight of the Lord, and walking in the way of Jeroboam, and in his sin which he had committed to make Israel sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and the treason he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Then the people of Israel divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tithni the son of Ganath to make him king, and half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri prevailed over the people who followed Tipni, the son of Ganath So Tipni died and Omri reigned. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king over Israel and reigned 12 years. Six years he reigned in Tirzah, and he bought the hill of Samaria from Shemur for two talents of silver. Then he built on the hill and called the name of the city which he built Samaria after the name of Shemur, the owner of the hill. Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all those who were before him. For he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sin which he had made Israel sin, provoking the Lord of God, To the God of Israel, to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Omri, which he did, and the might that he showed, are they not written in the books of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Omri rested with his fathers, was was buried in Samaria, then Ahab, his son, reigned in his place. In the 38th year of Asa king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Then he set up an altar for Baal and the temple of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden, wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid his foundations with Abraham, his firstborn, and with his younger son, Saggup, he set up its gates according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. So that very last verse there, if you read the book of Joshua, you'll see when Joshua takes down Jerusalem, he says, anybody that rebuilt, or I'm sorry, when he takes down Jericho, he says, anybody that rebuilds Jericho will do it. He'll, he'll set up the gates at the expense of his firstborn, and he'll, uh, lay, he'll lay the foundation at the expense of his firstborn and set up its gates at the expense of his youngest son. There's the fulfillment of right there um, from, from Joshua. He laid its foundation with Abraham, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Jacob, he set up its gates. That means they died when he did those things according to the word of the Lord through Joshua. So that was fulfilled. Uh, prophecy all right now my goodness okay so here's why i wanted to read the whole thing because there is a, a we went through many many chapters of just solomon and before that was many many chapters of david and it was filled with it was filled with um intrigue and palace uh controversy and it was filled with wars and it was filled with details of Relationships gone bad, and just there was blood. There was there was um, affairs. There was just incredible detail. Now, in a much shorter, just two chapters here, we get countless amounts of kings, just coming and going. It's this pattern of I don't even know where I wrote this now. It's this pattern of of rise, reign, sin, die, right? Rise, reign, sin, die. Rise, reign, sin, die. And you get this repetitive pattern of uh, all the evil they did and they rested with their fathers, right? And it's written in this other book, right? You just get this over and over and over again. And it's a point where you just want to say, I don't want to read this anymore. It's repetitive and it's boring. And I think that's very intentional. You see, the sins of these kings all come down to their lack of dependence upon God. The sins of these kings all come down to their immense amounts of idolatry. The things that they trust in. Um, Kierkegaard, he sees this repetition and he decides that he's gonna explore the possibility of reliving an earlier portion of his life. He wants to see what, what, what place repetition plays in our life. And here's what he discovered. So he wanted to explore the possibilities of reliving an earlier portion of his life, concluding that every effort at identical repetition is thwarted so that the only repetition was the impossibility of repetition. The only thing that ever repeated itself was the impossibility of really repeating events. Every effort at identical repetition expresses an infatuation with death, since only the dead can repeat identically. The dead do the same thing day after day after day after day after day. He says, so therefore, why do you see this repetition in the kings of Israel and Judah? Because what do they trust in? Lifeless idols, things that are dead. And what does it do? It brings their lives the the resemblance of death, this never-ending cycle that they can't get out of. The reality of the inevitability of non-identical repetition points to the triune character of God who is God as Father, and who is eternally and necessarily repeated differently as God in the Son and God in the Spirit. But the idolatrous life, because it pursues the lifelessness of its idols, pursues the vain repetitions of death. Lifeless idols make for lifeless people. The idols of success, money, and power creates a 21st century culture of anything goes, and who cares anyways, It is too dead and lazy to look to its implications and its consequences. It promotes the endless cycle of rise, reign, sin, die. Repeat. Now, Psalm 115. So what what I want you to be thinking about is this. Think of one or two or three things in your life, if there are any, that gets more of your affection, not your time, that's a whole different story, but more of your affection than God. Because I think it's very easy to talk about idolatry and everybody in the room goes, that's somebody else. Okay, Uh, John Calvin said, the human mind is an idol factory. It just keeps producing idols over and over and over again. And if you get into the meat of the book of Isaiah or this psalm that we're going to read here, some other things I'm going to show you, you're going to see why idolatry becomes the major sin of the Old Testament. So um, let's look at uh, Psalm 115. It says, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. So it's saying those who make these idols become those idols. Now, in Isaiah chapter 40, uh, you see this dynamic of God making his people that trust in him more like him. So you become like The thing that gets your worship the most, that gets your affection the most, you become like that. Um, Lifeless idols is what they're warning against or the, the true God. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase more and more, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence. That silence that it's speaking of there is the silence of these idols. Okay? It's complaining that idols have mouths, but they don't talk, right? You made a mouth for them, for what reason? They, they don't talk. So. If, and they're dead, they're lifeless. So those who don't praise the Lord, they say are dead. Without praise of the Lord, you're dead, you're lifeless, okay? Um, you're made to praise the Lord. Um, I want to look at Ecclesiastes 1. Ecclesiastes 1. I want to look at uh, the first nine verses. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor, which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away, another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises, and the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done, and there is nothing new. Under the sun. So uh, Solomon in his observations is saying everything's kind of on a circuit. Everything's kind of repetitive. Everything just kind of repeats itself over and over and over again. It's exactly how those two chapters in Kings sounded, right? It was just repetition. One after the other, after the other, after the other. Where is Solomon's attention when he writes this? There's nothing new where? Under the sun. Where does Paul encourage you to put your gaze? On things above. Correct? where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But Solomon has the same observations that you saw in Psalm 115, the same observations as we got in 1 Kings 15 and 16. It's this endless, painful cycle. And the big complaint is that there's just nothing that's new. Well, then all of a sudden you have Jesus come. And what do we experience when Jesus comes? Well, what if you're... What if you're hanging out with Jesus one day and then all of a sudden you see your religious leaders show up manhandling um, this woman who they just pulled out of an adulterous situation and they you see them throw her down into the dust at his feet. And you listen as the ones that you just heard last Saturday morning teach you the Torah. They're the ones that you go to for your religious understanding. And now you hear them challenging this guy that you've been following for a couple of years now, and they're challenging him with the law. The law says she's to be what? Stone to death, the law of Moses. So how could Jesus possibly show his crowd, his followers, the mercy of God when it would directly contradict the law of God? So what does he do? Well, he bends down in the dust, and he starts writing with his finger. And wouldn't you love to know what he wrote? Just love to know what he wrote. We don't, do we? Doesn't say anywhere what he wrote. But when there's something you don't know in the Bible, how can you make an educated guess about what he might have written? You always start with what you do know, okay? So what do we know about the finger of God writing? That's Jesus, right? His finger is writing. So where do we see the finger of God writing before? Book of Daniel, he's writing judgment against the king on the wall, correct? Ten Commandments, the finger of God wrote the Ten Commandments, that's the law, correct? Okay, in fact, it's one of the laws that uh, um, the Pharisees are challenging Jesus with right now. Thou shalt not commit adultery, correct? So so both times you see the finger of God write, it's, it's the law and judgment, isn't it? Okay, so I would say it's an educated guess to say that he's writing um, judgment against these men based on their sins, which if you pull a woman out of adultery, how did how did they dress for adultery? They don't, right? So how is this woman, and where were their eyes and hands and heart and minds as they brought her and so forth, and? Um, how did they know she was committing adultery? You know, spying, um, you know, whatever the case may be, entrapment. So he's writing something in the, in the dust that makes him then be able to say, you who are without sin cast the first stone. And apparently they just read their own conviction. So the Bible says one by one they start dropping their stones and leaving. And Jesus asked her, where are your accusers? And she looks and she says she has none, okay? But she's not out of the woods yet, is she? Because what's the standard of her making it out of there alive? There has to be somebody without sin to rightfully stone her. And guess who she's alone with now? The one who's without sin who can rightfully stone her to death. And so it's remarkable when he says "And neither do I accuse you. It's very transformational. It's resetting the entire understanding of the law right there isn't it so Jesus doesn't go by these repeated cycles does he he doesn't go by the um, um, understanding that you get just by looking under the Sun he has a divine creativity that allows him to see to the heart and deal with people for who they are not just what they've done so do you think that woman would say there's nothing new under the Sun like Solomon or is she somebody that's been made new? In fact, what does Jesus say about her newness? It's, you just got caught in tremendous sin, and now be a woman who goes and sins no more. Isn't that new? Okay. Um, What about the Samaritan woman of John 4? Okay. She uh, shows up, five husbands, currently living out of wedlock with a sixth, and leaves there as a uh, cleansed and purified and true uh, bride of Jesus Christ, right, Um, becomes an evangelist that day. And it's been talked about probably every single day since then for the whole rest of human history. So um, are things made new for her, of course, okay? Uh, What about Mary Magdalene? Who was she when we meet her? She was a demoniac, okay? Jesus said there's one condition of a person that's worse than all others. What was that? Seven demons in you. How many people do we get with seven demons? We don't know how many the legion guy had, but we know Mary Magdalene had seven demons. The worst condition of a person. Does Jesus leave her like that or she made brand new? Okay? She becomes... The only eyewitness to the resurrection and all of the credibility of the, erection, of the resurrection is only on her shoulders for a period of time where no other person in the first century would trust a woman with that testimony. Jesus did. So I love when the Bible says that when, when people say the Bible is anti-woman, it is groundbreaking with women. It, it, there are events that happen for women there that never happened in the world. And it's always at the hands of Jesus or Paul, always. Um, So then in 2 Corinthians, let me share with you this from from the Apostle Paul, chapter 5. And here's where I want to kind of... Actually, let's first go to Isaiah 44. I want to finish with 2 Corinthians. Let's go to Isaiah 44. Starting in verse 9. I ask you to think of one, two, or three things that maybe gets more of your affection than God. Um, I want you to think of that as we read this. Isaiah 44, verse 9. Those who make an image, all of them are useless, and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a gold... Who would form a god or mould an image that profits him nothing? Surely all his companions would be ashamed, and the workmen they're mere men. Let them all be gathered together, let them stand up, yet they shall fear, they shall be ashamed together. The blacksmith with his tongs works one works one in the coals, fashions it with hammers, and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so he's hungry and his strength fails, he drinks no water and is faint. He's saying, Here's a blacksmith making an idol to worship, yet the creator of that God is getting weary and tired, right? Because guess what we had four chapters ago in Isaiah? The Lord is, gets neither weary nor tired, right? And if you're in him, then you'll rise up on wings like eagles, like God, and you won't be weary or faint. But he says, when you make an idol, if you don't eat and drink, you're gonna get worn out, and you're the creator of that God, imagine that. The craftsman stretches out his rule, he marks one out with, the, with chalk, He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with the compass and makes it like the figure of a man according to the beauty of a man that it may remain in the house. Here's what God's saying. Listen, all this work that these guys do to make idols, they can't think of anything more glorious to form than the image of a man. You know, you watch sci-fi movies and you see these aliens. What are they always in the form of? You know, he always got two eyes and a mouth and two arms and two legs and listen. Even these creative geniuses that make these sci-fi movies can't come up with anything more intelligent looking than a man, than mankind, right? That's how perfectly we're made. He cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of his forest. He plants a pine, and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for man to burn, for he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He says these guys go out in the forest and they chop down these trees. And, um, and then they chop some of it up, put it in the fire to warm themselves. And then they'll put some in the oven to bake bread with. <laughs> and then they'll take what's left over and make a god and bow down and worship it. They're saying it just as so easily could have been the wood for the making the bread or the wood for keeping you warm. But yet this is getting your worship and you're bowing down to it. He burns half of it in the fire and with this half he eats meat. He roasts the roast and is satisfied. Then he warms himself and says, ah, I'm warm. I've seen the fire and the rest of it he makes into a god. His carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it and says, deliver me, you're my god. And he's the guy that just chopped it down a little while ago. Baked bread with some of it, kept himself warm with some of it, and then makes an idol and bows down to it. Now, you're laughing because you're saying, I would never do that. But what do you do? What do you do that God would literally mock and say, where's your trust been? Okay? When you're in this situation, who did you go to first? You post it on Facebook and let everybody know? Did you... Talk to a family member about it. Where was God on the whole equation? Okay, what's your first instincts? Okay, trust in God or trust in man. They do not know nor understand. He has shut their eyes so they cannot see and their hearts so they cannot understand. He's talking about the idol makers here. And what did he just, listen to what it says. God shuts the idol maker's eyes so they can't see and their hearts so they can't understand. He's making them like their idol, isn't he? The idol can't see. The idol has no heart of understanding. You're going to be like the thing that gets your affection and attention. What you trust in, you become. What you trust in, you become. And no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge nor understanding, to say, I burned half of it in the fire, and I've also baked bread on its cold. I've roasted meat and eaten it, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I bow down before, should I bow down before a block of wood? It says nobody even considers that. Nobody even considers the idols that you have. That's why I said... I want you to think of a couple things that get your affection and attention. Not your time, because our, our time is different, right? Time, you've got to do certain things during the day, okay? But those things that you're doing during the day that take so much time, you should be doing unto the Lord the way the Lord would have you do those things. That's how you set your affections on God, even though you can't give him the time that you have to give other things. You can still rightly have him as the supreme affection of your life If you simply are doing the things that take your time as unto the Lord, as an act of worship. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside and he can't deliver his soul nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? So he feeds on ashes. He's saying, listen, he just as easily could have been worshiping the ashes as the the God that's in front of him right now. And this is a thing that he holds in his right hand that he's asking to deliver him. So, um, um, that that's the ridiculousness of it. Now, let's go to the next chapter, chapter 45. God says this is what people like to do. And then uh, let's look at Isaiah 45, what he has to say. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held. Now, Cyrus is not born yet, by the way, when Isaiah writes this. He's just like he did with... Uh, Josiah the king. He names Josiah to be a king in the future before he's ever born, and names him. He now names Cyrus before Cyrus is born to deliver the Israelites out of Babylonian captivity. So when when uh, the Babylonians get freed, he names Cyrus as the guy that's going to do it uh, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings to open before him the double doors so the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. In other words, when God comes to deliver, he's going to have no obstacles. You know that song? um, What is it? Reckless Love, is that what it's called? One of your favorites. Um, No obstacles, right? He'll break down all barriers to get to you. That's what this is saying here. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake and Israel my elect. I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. He's talking about the future Cyrus. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. This is right after his talk on idols, correct? Now listen to what he's saying. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Is he trying to make a point? I form the light and create darkness. Is there any other state to be in than light or darkness? So he says, every condition you've been in has been me. Okay. I make peace and create calamity. Boy, do people struggle with that one. If your Bible has the word evil instead of calamity, it's a bad translation. The word is not evil, it's calamity. And this is speaking of all of the calamity that God has brought on Israel and Judah and Edom If you read the previous 44 chapters, you'll see judgment on all these nations and the calamity that came upon them. God's saying, I did that. Okay, I'm doing that. I, the Lord, do all these things. Rain down, you heavens from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open. Let them bring forth salvation and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. He's saying, woe to him who actually strives with me. Listen, I know we feel freedom to say, I'm struggling, I'm suffering, I'm but to strive against God is to say, I question you. Okay, not it's, it's okay to cry out and say you're struggling, but the question that he's good, the question that he could be righteous in what you're dealing with, that he's saying, let the potsherds strive with the pot shirts. You know, it's the clay and the potter. The pot are the broken pottery. He's saying, let them question each other, but there's no room to question me, he's saying. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or shall your handiwork say he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, what are you beginning? Or to the woman, what have you brought forth? He's saying, when you question God like that, it's like your kid saying to you, what did you make? What did did you begin? Okay. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands you command me. I have made the earth and created man on it. I, my hands, stretched out the heavens, and all their host. I have commanded. I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. See, Israel here, when they hear that Cyrus, a Syrian, I'm sorry, a Persian, is going to deliver them from the hands of Babylon, God is predicting their frustration. Why are you taking one of our enemies to deliver us from another enemy? And so he's saying, trust me on this. Okay? Don't, don't challenge me on this. Trust, trust. He's saying, I raised up Cyrus in righteousness and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free. Not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord, the labor of Egypt, the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and they shall be yours. So these enemies of yours are gonna serve you. They shall walk behind you. They shall come over in chains and they shall bow down before you. They will make supplication to you saying, surely God is in you and there is no other. Now what he's trying to tell Israel now is, I'm the Lord and there is no other. That's what he's trying to say this chapter, right? He's saying, I'm gonna do such a work that your enemies are gonna say this, you're God's God and there is no other. He's saying, they're gonna get it when I do this work. Truly you are God who hide yourself, O God of Israel, the savior. They shall be ashamed and also disgraced, all of them. They shall go into confusion together, who are makers of idols. Back to that. Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. Now I use that in apologetics all the time, because people say, if, if your God is real, why didn't he make such a huge universe with millions of stars and tons of planets and all this, and our tiny little speck that you would never find, if you got lost in space, you would never find the Milky Way anywhere yet the Earth. Okay, it's too, too tiny. So why is this God's affection on this tiny dust particle in, in space? Well, here, and we see no life anywhere else. It says God formed the Earth to be inhabited. He didn't form several places. It's the earth I formed to be inhabited. I mean, if you just think about it, what's the closest planet to? us? Mars, okay? If some, every couple of years you'll say, oh, we found a water molecule on Mars, and then you'll never hear that story again. You know why? Because it wasn't a water molecule, okay? But even if it was, is that compared to the earth? It's three quarters water. It's teeming with life everywhere. The oceans are just massively packed with life after life. The land is packed with life after life and if that's not enough the air is packed with life after life we have life everywhere whether it's animals or people or whether it's plants and vegetation and i can never understand how a non-believer can justify how carrots and peas and potatoes grow on the same planet that people who need to eat peas and carrots and potatoes are on that is so lucky right okay how did it all come to the tiny dust particle called the earth and nowhere else? Right here, God formed the earth to be inhabited. Doesn't it look like it? I thought you'd be saying yes, yes, yes. All right, I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret in the dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you who have escaped from the nations. They have no knowledge, who carry the word of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient times? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? He's saying, I've revealed this from day one to all of us. And there is no other God besides me. How many times has he said that? Okay, a just God and a savior. There is none besides me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. This is the Old Testament, isn't it? Here's a call to Gentile salvation, isn't it? God had Gentiles in mind from, from the very beginning. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, don't you love his predicament that he can't swear to anything else but himself, okay? The word has gone out from my mouth and righteousness and shall not return. That to me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. Now listen, here's why I wanted to get to that point. How many times he said that I am the Lord and there is no other. And now he says, I swear by my very name, I take an oath by my very name. What? That to me, every knee will bow and every tongue take an oath. Here's how Paul says it. Um, Have this attitude that was also found in Christ Jesus that, okay, my memory just left, let me look it up. It's Philippians chapter two. Have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God himself, did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearances of a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him, gave him the name that's above every name, that in the name of Jesus, God says, I take an oath, because there is no, I am God and there is no other, and I take an oath on my very name, that to me, every knee will bow. What does Paul say? The name of Jesus, every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess, that's the version of every tongue will take an oath, that Jesus is Lord, Um, Jesus is the God of Isaiah 45 saying I am the Lord and there is no other. That's Jesus saying that. Okay. He says every knee will bow to me. He says it in Isaiah 45. He says it in Philippians 2. Okay. Now let's finish in 2 Corinthians. So the repetitious, life-sapping um, work of idols in your life, anything that's not God, okay? It makes you dead like them, correct? It makes you without life in yourself. You become as blind and dumb and deaf and useless as, as the idol that you worship, is, is, what, is what this is saying. So. Solomon thinks about that in the book of Ecclesiastes. This repetitious, remember Kierkegaard was trying to repeat things in his life and he was finding it's impossible. The only ones that successfully repeat anything are who? The dead. The dead. The dead. Okay. Uh, because the, your variety is a result of serving the triune God who exists as Father and then exactly the same in a different form as Son and exactly the same in a different form as the Spirit. You say, how can that be? That's who he is. Okay. So, uh, vitality and variety and, and creativeness is all a signs of life of following God. So, uh, Solomon's big um, mantra of Ecclesiastes is that there is uh, nothing new under the sun. Correct? Well, in Genesis 1, you see. Uh, this pattern of writing where it says the earth was formless and void, there was darkness over the surface of the deep, and uh, it's describing the chaos of pre creation. And then God spoke and said, Let there be light, and there was light, correct? And then everything else followed. Well, Paul picks up on that and realizes that you were once in darkness, is one of his teachings. Um, making you uh, void of the Spirit, formless and void of the Spirit. And, uh, um, and in Genesis 1, it said, the Spirit was hovering over the waters, right? So there's this movement of the Spirit right before creation starts and light appears. Well, Paul says the Spirit moves in you. Romans 10, 9 says the Word is spoken. God said and then you became the light of the world, right? So in other words, you're exactly the pattern of creation, going from formlessness and void, where you stay when you worship idols, to uh, being alive. And so Paul sees this pattern. What does he say? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Okay, Uh, There's nothing new under the sun. How does that get rebuked? You look at a room full of saved people, and every one of you is new. Every one of you is a new creation of God, each one of you. He's brought you from darkness to light, uh, formlessness to the image of himself, and, um, and what does he, he say in Revelation 21? Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. All right? You see, Jesus is the answer. Okay, you turn from idols to Christ, everything becomes new, starting with you. Okay, you become the newness of Christ. Um, so uh, I would urge you this week, until we meet again, just to um, consider how you do work, consider how you do free time, consider how you do um, parenting, siblings, how you do whatever you do. And... And see if God has a primary position in all of those relationships. Um, heed the warning of John Calvin. Your brain, that thing between your ears, is a idol factory. It's always creating things uh, that, to get your uh, affection more than God. So, um, uh, but he is the Lord and there is no other. And um, you and I, hopefully, will all be a part of the bowing the knee to him one day in worship where the unbelieving world bows in recognition of the one who's uh, damned them. So um, so let's be the former. All right, let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, we come to you and we ask for forgiveness for all those things, Lord, that uh, we let elbow you out of our hearts and our lives. And Lord, we uh, want to give you the preeminence in all things because it's the only place that. You belong, it's the only place appropriate for you, Uh, Lord, is to be first in all things. And Lord, when we do that, um, we know that uh, it'll be your guidance in our life, it'll be your wisdom, it'll be your love that guides the days of our lives, and Lord, we pray for that. We pray that our trust would increase, that uh, troubles at work, Lord, we would go straight to you, troubles at home, straight to you, Lord, that we would conquer fear uh, through trust in you and faith in you. And God, that all of our anxieties and cares would be cast upon you because you care for us. And so, Lord, we present ourselves to you, afresh and anew, in Jesus' name. Amen.